Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Speaking of the uh, greater church, it's a, a community of us pastors. We get together, Colorado Springs here, and uh, different churches, and we discuss and interact and then pray for one another. Um, and uh, recently, this group of pastors did a survey um, and asked uh, the pastors a bunch of different questions. And one of them, which was I, I found particularly intriguing, was of the trauma of the last two and a half years, how have you gotten past that, right? This COVID and, and uh, racial strife and the political division and all that, it's been rough and rugged on all of us, the whole world, really. And a number of pastors struggling. They say that uh, the temptation to leave ministry is, is at an all-time high, just really significant. And so there were some really great answers that the pastors were talking about. They were, they were, they were talking about prayer. They were talking about scripture and uh, talking about their spouses. And then the first answer... And the very first word of that answer caught my attention right away. I opened it up, I turned, and the first word was hope, period. And I kind of stopped at that. I thought, yeah, the, the power of hope, especially in trying times, the, the power of hope when we're we're facing distress and uncertainty can be so significant. I remember during, the, during COVID, my son Luke, he's like, Dad, like, is, is stuff ever going to be back to the same? My, my dad, uh, my son loved, loves interaction, loves people and this isolation. And he was also talking about movies. He loves movies and going, he's like, ever. And I, and I said, Yes, buddy, I believe that someday we might be wiser. Things might be a little bit different, but I hope that things will be restored someday. Would you think with me this morning about the power of hope? Perhaps we don't think about that enough. Do you know there's actual studies that have been done that have said that there is a correlation of hope with, say, physical health. Like uh, people who talk about a level of hope, their usual physical health is stronger and, and even longevity of life. That people who live with more hope tend to live longer. Would you think about the power of hope in our lives? We've been in this series of thin places. We've been looking at different times when, when that that membrane or, or curtain between heaven and earth gets really thin in circumstances in scripture and in moments of life. Have you noticed that these stories that we've looked at in scripture, that, that God grants the grace of a, a thin place to someone, especially when they're in distress, especially when they're struggling, especially when they're in a place of hopelessness. Elijah, he was burned out. He was ready to be done. He's like, oh, he's in the desert. And God grants him his still small voice. 
We looked at uh, Tabitha. The, the, the community of faith had lost this dear saint who served and loved and did so well. And they were, they were called Peter. And can you help us? And God grants them with bringing new life back to life, Tabitha. And then last week, the, the early church, they just lost their first apostle to martyrdom, James. And, and it seemed like Peter was ready to go. And they're like crying out to God. And God gives them and grants them this thin place of Peter. This morning, we're going to look at a resurrection story. But a different kind of resurrection story, a resurrection appearance of Christ. In fact, if you would, if you brought your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And in this story, this is after the cross, after Jesus was crucified, and it's three days after. And some of the early women had discovered the empty tomb and the church was still in this place. Would you imagine for a moment, just, just trying to enter into this place of the church, if, if you had pinned your hopes on a particular individual to write everything that was wrong in your life. And that's what the early church, early disciples did. They had pinned their hopes on Jesus, that he was the Messiah, the anointed king, he was the one who would throw off the shackles of oppression and make life right. And then in that moment, the, the, the government that they thought the Messiah was sent to overthrow killed him. And with that, all their dreams of new life. Can you imagine the, the sadness, the shock, the, the depression, the, the pain, the sense of loss and, and disillusionment in God and in life? Can you imagine that hopeless place? That's where the church was. And then we're going to pick up in Luke 24, verse 13, says... Now that same day, two of them were going into a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So Emmaus is about to the west of Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. It stopped them in their tracks. Their faces downcast, probably some insecurity about was this stranger pro the religious leaders that led to his death, pro Rome that led to his death. But they, their faces are downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus is playing at coy. <laughs> About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet 
powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had pinned all their hopes on him. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women, well, they amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. They didn't see Jesus. He, Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe. The phrase always gets me. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther again. Jesus kind of... But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Someone was recently saying to me that they struggle to open up scripture and, and really get it and understand when they're on their own reading scripture. And one of the things I would recommend is just read a passage of scripture and notice what sticks out to you. Notice what kind of wedges in your heart and soul and pay attention to this. This is one of the stories that there's a, a number of things that that stick out to me and kind of get wedged in my heart and soul. One of them is, is the idea of, of they had hoped that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel, redeem their lives. Another one is the, is the irony where they're saying, our women, they didn't see Jesus and they don't see Jesus, and they're saying that to Jesus. I think that's somewhat humorous, right? We don't know where he is. We don't see him. They're saying it like right to Jesus. I mean, was Jesus like, 
during that. When Jesus says, slow to believe, I think that gets me because I then ask, are there parts of the faith that I'm slow to believe? I hold on to. And Jesus is inviting me to stop being so foolish and trust him. Burning hearts also within us addresses me. I think in this, these, this story of the scriptures, what I see Jesus doing, which I think is really instructive for us, is he is taking these two disciples from a hopeless place and he's building, he's restoring, you could say he's resurrecting the hope in their hearts in him. And that's where it's instructive and, and particularly powerful for us that he's preserved the story in part so that we might reflect and notice and see how Jesus restores the hope of the two disciples. And so for us, in whatever area that we might be despondent or hopeless in, or maybe the times that we can return to the story and see how Jesus restores their hope and say, Lord, would you do the same for me? And in fact, there's three ways that really I feel like he particularly restores their hope. And the first is this idea of presence. This idea of God entering into their lives. One of the things that I noticed is that I thought it was so neat that even though they were kept from recognizing that it was Jesus, they were captivated by Jesus. That They were like, who is this? The words he's speaking, the, the, the perspective that he's giving. He is actually instructing us how to understand this circumstance in a different way. And then they didn't even know Jesus. In fact, if you look at um, uh, verse, my page flipped here, when they say, would you stay with us? Verse 29, but they urged him strongly, stay with us. That Greek word, the, the New King James Version translates it different. They say, would you abide with us? That, that same word when Jesus says, abide in me, and extends that invitation. They, even though they didn't know who Jesus was at that moment, they're saying, would you stay with us? Would, would you abide with us? Can you, can you stay longer with us? That causes me to ask the question of myself. Am I captivated with the person of Jesus? Am I saying, Jesus, would you abide with me this day? Would you stay with me? Could we be together in this moment? In this particular moment of, of strain or difficulty or challenge, Jesus, would you abide with me? 
I think this is a prayer that we get to pray. You know, I realize that our, our American culture is, is really a, a, a work culture, is a, let, let's get things done, let's be motivated, let's, let's which in many ways that's a, a, a good qualities of having a strong work ethic. Where there's many of us that are, are Marthas as opposed to Marys. Like we want to cook the dinner, right? We want to get things done for Jesus, for the glory of God. And yet, there's this invitation throughout Scripture from God's presence that he wants us to abide with him. In fact, I would say there's two concepts that have helped me be a little bit less Martha and a little bit more Mary. A little bit hold on to the, yes, I want to do things for God, but also respond to that invitation of abiding with the Lord. The first concept is this one, this idea of portion. Look at your neighbor and say this word, portion. What's your portion? Scripture uses this as a portion of food or the portion of inheritance. Or Elisha said to Elijah, can I have a double portion of your spirit, the portion? David, who had a pretty, King David, who had a pretty big portion in life, right? A lot of wealth, a lot of fame, a lot of authority, a lot of accomplishment. At one moment in the Psalms, he prays this, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Saying, why would David pray that? I mean, David had tons of portion. He had tons of, he was a king. And yet he recognizes that the center of his life, that his, his the best blessing of all is the Lord himself as his portion. You are my portion in my life. That one concept has led me to go, God, is it okay if you remove everything else? Any, any wealth I have, any, any relationships I have, any, anything else, and that are you really the center of my portion? And I'll be okay. Now, there's a second concept that's related to this that those of you who went on the mission trip with me will recognize this concept. Is it's, a, it's from Ignatian spirituality, and they talk about this idea. It's a little bit deeper and complex, but it says contemplatives in action. What in the world does that mean? It's the model of Jesus where Jesus would oftentimes sneak away in the midst of all this ministry of all the crowds going after him and them wanting to get be with Jesus, be healed with Jesus, him multiplied food, that Jesus would sneak away and he would be with the Father. In a sense, he would abide with the Lord. I would imagine he would pray about what happened in the previous day and pray what was coming. He would just 
abide with his father. And then he would move into action. And then he would go into ministry. And, and Ignatian argued that that was a model for us. That first, we, we don't want to miss the best parts of the Christian faith, which is a personal relationship with Christ. We don't want to be so busy doing for God that we miss the best portion, which is intimacy with God. That we get to abide with him. And then our action, and then our Martha-esque work, that is transformed by that time of abiding with the Lord. I didn't ask permission, but I'll, I'll, so I'll say one member of the mission team, he was newer to the church, and he said, man, since I've been here, I've been more contemplative in my entire life, and I'm over 50. And I'm like, yes! If that's abiding with Christ. You see, that's how he wants to restore and renew our hope, is to be in his presence. You know, when my father passed away, he passed away at 65, and he was... It was way too early, and I, I told you about my prayer when I first saw him. And I was so sad. It wasn't right. And uh, we had the, the memorial service. And then, of course, Sunday came. We had the memorial service on Saturday, and Sunday came. And our, my family was wiped out from the memorial service because we were all sad. And I just said, you know, I'm going to church. And they, they didn't want to go to church. Understandably, they were wiped out. But you know why I wanted to go to church? I just wanted to be in God's presence. I just wanted to be with him. I still remember the, the message. The message, it was, it was delivered well, and it absolutely had nothing to do with my circumstance. It was on evangelism. It was a good message by one of my friends. And, and it, but it didn't even matter because I just wanted to be in God's presence. I just wanted to be a, in a corner of, a, of the sanctuary where no one knows me and I just get to be with the Lord. There's a ministry of God's presence, especially in those moments of loss and pain and hopelessness that he wants to minister to you. There's a second way, and this really comes from verse 32, when he disappears and they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road when he opened the scriptures to us what he was doing was he was changing perspective he was sharing the scriptures and moving them from a place of hopelessness to a place of hope that God even though they thought God had let them down God was doing a new thing a different thing a thing that was stirring once again the hope that God, Jesus, was the Messiah who they thought they 
he was, but in fact, even better, not just redeeming Israel, but redeeming the whole world. I was thinking of uh, earlier thin places when we had talked about um, uh, Elijah, and he was giving some prophetic help to the king of Israel, and King Aram, a foreign king, was really upset that Israel was getting some prophetic help in the military. And so he's going after the Israel's armies, and they would know, and so they would go away and flee. And he was really frustrated, so he's like, let's kill the prophet. And so he sends his army and surrounds the town of the prophet, and the prophet's servant wakes up, and he looks, and he sees all the military around. He's like, oh my gosh, we are in trouble. And Elijah says, Lord, would you open my servant's eyes to see? 2 Kings 6, 17, and Elisha, I'm sorry, Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you think that would have built confidence in the servant? Do you think that would have stirred a hope and a like, okay, God has got this. Friends, that's what happens oftentimes when we read scripture, when we bring our moments of difficulty and pain and we open the word of God, then God begins to fill our perspective. There was a, a study done by the American Bible Society in assistance with Harvard University. I, I love their human flourishing program. So American Bible Study, this is a recent study, and the human flourishing pro program, and they interviewed a thousand people six months apart. It says they found that frequent Bible readers rated themselves 33 points more hopeful than irregular scripture readers. In fact, what they're saying is that the more the frequency of readers reading scripture, they found increased the level of hope of the people. And in fact, the, the leader of the Human Flourishing Program, he said this, Bible reading along with other forms of community and discipleship such as going to church and participating in small groups, appear to contribute to per people's sense of well-being and happiness. This is just they were a statistical study was showing that as people, and I would put the language of means of grace, reading scripture, in community, in prayer, the hopelessness begins to dissipate and hope in God begins to fill your soul. Personally, I have had moments when my heart felt like it was burning as I read scripture. The kingdom of God, this is Jesus' big idea. Oh my God, yes! Fresh revelation! And yet, you know, oftentimes... There's not really a burning. There's just this, you could call it a slow burn. There's a pilot light. I, 
I don't walk away with scripture and go, wow, that was awesome. But oftentimes it's, a, it's this slow flame of God's voice that strikes me. And sometimes it's, it's not jaw-dropping to me, but I just, it's a sense is that just a little bit he moves me to see my circumstances, my life, and my relationship a little bit more through his lens. A little bit more. A little bit more. And so I'm not, I love those moments when my heart lights up and I feel like God is speaking, but I'm okay with those moments when I'm just allowing him to shift a little bit how I see this relationship or how I should understand this circumstance or a truth maybe that I want to hold on to. I'm not there in this moment, but I want to hold on to. And through the power of scriptures, which is the revelation of God, my perspective is slowly changed. I would have loved, we were sharing, someone was sharing in our prayer time. Wouldn't have you love if you would have unpacked exactly what Jesus said, right? To how he walked through the Old Testament, the exact scriptures, and saw how they like, wow. I believe that's the basis of the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews and others. But, but we get to read, in essence, it's available to us every day the revelation and the truth of what Jesus revealed to them, Cleopas and the other disciple. That we get to get in on the burning of our hearts, even if it's a slow burn. You don't have to take my word for it, take the Harvard study of human flourishing that if you want to decrease that sense of sadness and hopelessness and pain, well then start filling it with both the presence of God, abiding with God, and the word of God, the revelation of God. And finally, I would say he offers his grace, especially in those moments. Maybe some of you noticed I tried to do my best to share communion with you in this way. I tried to read it in this way, but look at verse 30 with me. Now, if we can go back on the screens. But there's this almost, it's a, a sacred rhythm of language that's found in the New Testament. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks broke it, and began to give it to them. Isn't that interesting? Does that make you think of anything? I gave you tons of hints. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then they saw Jesus do that and go, Jesus! Poof, he was disappeared. Right? I think it's so cool 
that Jesus chose this rhythm to us. I was in a, a seminary class, and the professor, he said, I locked my, uh, when he was in seminary, locked himself to, in, for a couple of days in scripture. It was before we had all the tools to study language, and he studied all of the Old Testament for that rhythm of language to take, to give thanks, to break, and to give. You can see it's a, a rhythm of language, especially surrounding the sacrament. Jesus again, was instituting this incredible, beautiful sacrament of a means to grace. That, as I said earlier in communion, that the different denominations have recognized that this is an incredible aspect of being a Christian. That there is a, this, it's, it's made alive, this, this reality of God's grace flowing in the here and now. That this very moment, that God's grace is flowing and available to us. Isn't that incredible? That's he makes available. All of these things we're talking about, his presence, that, that we, can, we can be in the shower and experience his presence. We can, do, we, can be doing, we can be walking on the street and experience his presence. It doesn't matter. We can say, Lord, I need your presence now in this moment. We can, most of us, which is a, an honor in the United States, is we can open up his word on our phone, no less, right? We can allow his revelation and his truth to overflow into us. Listen to how Paul talks about, well, first let me read this. This is a, a prophetic word, Zechariah 12.10 says this. I don't have this on the screens, I don't think. Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David, this is God speaking to his children, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. This is part of what God wants to do and is doing, is he's pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication. Listen to how Paul talks about it, this is 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, Paul's talking about himself, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul recognized it. He saw it in his own life. God, he said yes to God, and he allowed his grace, his love, his faith to be poured out in his life. Now listen to how he responds. 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. He said it didn't hit me, and I was like, well, that's interesting, but I'm not really into that. No! 
He said, it is going to change. It has changed my life. Was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Here's the Martha piece. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Again, this idea of contemplatives in action. He says, the grace of God, the faith of God, the love of God was poured out on me, and I received it fully. And then that stirred up in me, and I did, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Not I, but the grace in me. In your outline, I, I use the word offer. That he offers his presence. He offers his truth and his perspective. He offers his grace to us. Saying because he offers all this, he invites us to respond. He invites us to say yes to all of this. You know, grace can be understood. I, I happen to like this very simple way. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. All that God has for us is made available to us. But did you notice Paul's words? He said, oh, I'm letting the grace of God have its full effect on me. I'm saying yes to God's love. Yes to God's grace. Yes, I'm going to walk. My life is going to be transformed by his grace. One last question that I bring to this text, this story is why is only one of the disciples named in the story, Cleopas, and we don't know the other. I wonder if the other was not part of the early church. I don't know. I have nothing to back this up. I'm just guessing. But I wonder why they would only share Cleopas's name. And then the other disciple that Maybe his name or her name was lost in the early church. Could it be that Cleopas responded to this incredible moment of Jesus Christ? That Cleopas's name would be remembered for generations as we reflect on this story? Could it be that the other disciple didn't say yes, didn't allow the grace of God to transform his or her life. I hope not. I hope that they are with Christ in heaven. I don't know, but I take it as an invitation. I want the grace of God to transform my life. I want to say and pray the prayer, God, could we abide together a little bit right now? I want to be the one who's opening the word of God and receiving God's revelation and truth.
I want to put my place, my, myself in a place of grace. Where again and again, I'm receiving more and more from him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, Lord, I just pray that you would stir our thirst for you. That you would stir our hunger for more of you, Lord God. That we would desire to know you and be known by you in ever-increasing measure. Lord, we want to say, abide with us. Be with us. Meet us, Lord, especially in those places of distress or sadness or hopelessness. Would you abide in us, 